You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 538 of this podcast. Today is January 14th, 2023, and we are going to talk in this episode about foppery, and (laughs) it's good to be a man, a book I am halfway through now. I just started it the other day. Also, uh, Safe Haven Baby Boxes, some comments that Gwyneth Paltrow recently made to Katy Perry regarding children and the effect or influence they can have on a marriage. Also, polygamy and child marriage. And finally, we'll get into what is a theodicy. And hopefully, actually, by the end, you will realize that our treatment of each of these subjects can be a theodicy. And it should be. For the Christian, it should be a theodicy. I'll explain what that is, why that matters, why you should care. (laughs) But first, to start us off, I am following Abraham Piper on Instagram. And I don't know why I'm doing that to myself, because every time he shows up in my feed, as I'm just scrolling, and I don't scroll very often, but every time I scroll by one of his videos, I, I, I find myself irritated. And uh, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about everything. Uh, that's the tagline of this podcast. And that includes Abraham Piper, who is, if you didn't know, son of John Piper. Abraham Piper has his Instagram bio, uh, description, summary, whatever, uh, as the following. Language factoids, pseudo-intellectualism and sacrilege, an individuated parody of the cosmic self, same as you, Come along if you feel like it. That that that. Abrahampiper.com is followed by pun uh, underscore Bible. He is an artist, he says. And uh, I'm going to play one of his little shorts, one of his reels on Instagram for you because I have some thoughts. I have some things to say uh, about his comments here, which are typical of what I have. Uh, heard and seen of him thus far. But here is Abraham Piper on religion is essential like a hobby. Take a listen. Religion is essential and religion is a hobby. Religion is essential because it's a hobby. The fact that there's no religious consensus is as close as we can come to having hard evidence that there's no truth to be found in that arena at all. There's no knowledge, but there are feelings and activities. It's making my head spin how many activities you can do. Because that's what religion is. It fills our time and gives us meaning. It's like playing a sport or doing puzzles. And then as an activity, we can build our lives around it if we want to. It can be our identity. Don't worry, we can still fight and kill each other. There are plenty of sports enthusiasts probably out there brawling at this very moment. Less so in the puzzling community, as far as I know. Point is, before it can be so key to your identity that you die for it, it is, at its heart, a pastime, a diversion. And I think realizing that can dampen the need to be so dogmatic about it. That way it can be everything to us without having to be anything to someone else. Because it's not about truth, it's about feelings and activities. People will look at a doddering old man whose life seems aimless and sad and they'll say he needs a hobby. And they're right. But why? 
Because after our basic needs are met, we need something to fill our time and give it purpose. So none of what I'm saying denigrates religion. It's essential for a fulfilling life. Either religion or something like it. A hobby. It passes the time, it entertains, it's drama, and all of that adds up to meaning. And then we die. Nailed it. Anyway, thanks for watching. Come along for more if you feel like it. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 26, 4 to 5 comes to mind. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. So, for starters, Abraham Piper is a mocker. He's a scoffer. He is scoffing. He's mocking. Uh, he, he says he's not denigrating religion in any way. But then uh, that's not true. He's not being honest. He's not being genuine. He is denigrating religion relative the value that many people place, I would say most people in the world place uh, on religion. So insofar as his argument in part is that we know that there is no such thing as truth where religion is concerned because we can't all get on the same page. If that line of reasoning is correct, then it's all the more reason to dismiss his dismissal of religion because insofar as there is a consensus one way or the other regarding the value of religion, there are more people in the world and throughout history who have disagreed with his view than have agreed with it. But that doesn't get us to the truth specifically, not in the details. That just gets us to rejecting his claim that religion is basically every bit as useless or useful as a hobby like fishing or uh, puzzles. It's every bit as useful and useless. Uh, yes, that is denigrating religion. But how do we think rightly about religion? Well, I consider James one twenty seven with religion defined properly and not just any old religion, whatever you want to call religion, whatever is under the umbrella of religious being uh, given equal respect. We have to go back to, as Christians, what does God say about religion or what does God's word say about religion? Interestingly, to narrow it down, you could narrow it down like Abraham Piper does. You could say, I'm going to say that religion that is acceptable is puzzles, uh, something calming, relaxing, that gives you drama and fills your time and occupies your mind. Well, actually, that's the wrong way to think about good religion. And it's just like anything, right? You, you could have a good uh, Instagram engagement in the sense of, hey, there's lots of people that subscribe to my uh, reels or that follow my account and have their uh, time, you know, either wasted or, uh, you know, well invested watching what I take video of and upload or listening to what I record and upload. You could have a good engagement. You could have a waste of time. It's not all the same. The same is also true with regards to art. Now, some in the postmodern uh, persuasion hold that art is whatever the artist says is art. And even just if we're talking about it, well, then that's art. And I would say, yeah, some art is garbage, though. And some art is, if you don't like to hear this, it doesn't make it not true. 
some art is objectively better than other art, even if you just say that the measure of art is whether we're talking about it. We don't talk about all art equally. Some art really stands the test of time, and we're still talking about it thousands of years later. Think uh, when a old uh, Roman house in Pompeii is excavated and we find, and we use the term beautiful, a beautiful mosaic on the floor, very skillfully put together and engaging and fascinating. And it communicates something about the perspective of the artist and of the person who commissioned the art, not necessarily one and the same person. And it gives us a window into the experience of a Roman living in Pompeii thousands of years ago. We're still talking about it, and we're not necessarily talking about it uh, in the same way or with the same amount of value or credit or uh, excitement as the guy who lives next door to you who just you know dips his brush in the paint and splashes it on the canvas and says, ah, that's art. Now pay me 500 bucks, right? Somebody might pay him 500 bucks. But what they're paying for is the window into the perspective of the postmodernist as much or more as it being a visually pleasing thing that communicates anything. What it communicates in its particulars is about the same thing that Abraham Piper is communicating. It's not an original idea to say, you know, I'm going to mock and scoff at what you guys hold so sacred and so dear. That's not an original idea. People have been doing that for thousands of years. And they've always been obnoxious, but at the same time, they've always attracted something of a following, uh, sometimes from those who are similarly more interested in tearing down than building up. Uh, Also, sometimes from people who objectively have serious criticisms and, uh, uh, and complaints about the paradigm as it stands or the status quo. They see problems with it and they can't tweak it. The status quo won't let them, the powers that be won't let them tweak it. And so their protest is to try and tear down what is uh, not working right now so they can build something new. And it's like shaking the Etch-A-Sketch or tearing out the sheet in your sketchbook and uh, and throwing that, uh, that sketch that you're not happy with in the garbage and starting over, starting fresh, writing a new thing. James 127 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, what are some things that we can deduce from James 1.27? First of all, there is such a thing as impure religion or defiled religion before God the Father. So if you... Abraham Piper or anybody who follows Abraham Piper or follows his line of reasoning, thinks that way or struggles with thinking that way, supposes that God exists. If we can establish that much, it's not enough, but it's a start. Then the question ought to be, what religion pleases God? What does he accept? He, therefore, if he accepts any religion whatsoever, if he is pleased by any religion whatsoever, uh, as I reason, must inversely not be pleased by other religion, or he must uh, reject other religion. 
And this is just preliminary. This is just warming up, right? For one, assert that God exists. For two, ask the question, all right, since God exists, what religion does he accept? What religion does he regard as pure and undefiled? Also, by extension or by exclusion, what religion does he regard as impure and defiled, unholy religion that he doesn't accept, he's not pleased by, he doesn't reward? What is that religion? Well, it's actually very narrow and it's not a hobby unless you're going to get really weird in how you define a hobby. Uh, and if, you, if your hobby is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, then, uh, I mean, that's, it's kind of funny. Um, but, but that, I don't, I don't think that that is the category to put taking care of orphans and widows or checking in on them or letting them know that they're loved. That's what I read from visit orphans and widows. You're letting them know that they're loved. And, uh, as well, if they have needs that you are in a position to help meet you are doing so. They have no one else to support them. The widow is, uh, she, she doesn't have a husband. So maybe what her need is, is she needs to find a husband, a good man who is going to love her and provide for her and lead her well and protect her. Uh, if you're talking orphans, uh, what is their need? Well, they need parents. So maybe what you're going to do is help an orphan to get connected with parents, uh, adoptive parents. Maybe you're going to adopt the orphan and take them into your home and raise them as your own child. That's the kind of religion that God regards as pure and undefiled. And I would just reason that if you extrapolate out what is necessary in the Christian faith in order for us to be in a position to, or see the need and fill the need of visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, uh, you can know something about how a Christian faith that God is pleased by will orient itself, how it will conduct itself, how it will proceed and carry itself. Uh, but then there's a, there's an additional part here to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is a very broad uh, category of thinking, feeling, reasoning, living, uh, conversing, relating to keep oneself unstained from the world uh, that is to say that you are resisting the draw of corrupting influences. That's another way you could put this. So, for instance, if the world is chock full of religions, and it is, you don't say, well, then therefore, there, there must not be any religion that God the Father regards as pure and undefiled. Because there is impure religion or there is defiled religion, therefore there must not be any such thing as pure and undefiled because we can't agree. Uh, that would be about as sensible as saying that the murderer and their would-be murder victim can't agree on whether the victim should continue to live. And so we just can't know. Right? I guess we'll just have to find out. Well, you know, excuse me while I go back to my puzzle. That's absurd. That is a godless way of thinking. And the only reason you didn't catch it is because you're having daddy issues right now, I think. Um, sorry, uh, no offense, but uh, the only reason you didn't catch the ginormous hole 
in uh, your reasoning is because you're more interested in tearing down and mocking than you are building up uh, what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. You're scoffing. Uh, I think here of Psalm 1, 1 through 6 as well. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. The sinner, the scoffer, the wicked, if you want to be blessed, you will not walk in their counsel, you won't stand in their way, you won't sit in their seat, you will not be defiled by them, and you won't be corrupted by their bad ideas, their bad arguments. You won't try to flatter them. And this really gets to whether we are doing our religion in the way that the Pharisees did before men, to be seen by men, to be praised and acclaimed and applauded and to be spoken well of by men, or whether we would be just as happy and happier to do our good works in secret, that our Father who sees in secret would reward us. That's really where this gets to, if we think rightly about it, and we should, and we ought to. <clears throat> now, this is as good a time, having said that, to transition into an exploration of the word foppery. Foppery. What is a fop? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, first let's define foppery, shall we? Oxford Languages, by way of Google, says that this is a noun, and its definition is affected and excessive concern with one's clothes and appearance. Excessive means that there is a appropriate amount of concern you should pay to what you wear, how you look, and then there's a point of diminishing returns where it's silly and it's uh, an opportunity cost that you pay to, to be as attentive to how you dress, how you look, your fashion, uh, your appearance, uh, you, there's an opportunity cost. It's not that there's no value, but you have gone beyond that and it's eating into substance in other worthy uh, pursuits. You are neglecting other matters, other important uh, values and pursuits in favor of undue excessive concern with your clothes and appearance. Uh, <clears throat> I will not throw a stone, although I very easily could, concerning some people uh, I was just talking about who are a bit foppish, right? But that, that's what a fop is. A man who is concerned with his clothes and appearance in an affected and excessive way, a dandy. So, this is a little bit of a, a judgment call, I suppose, based on our cultural context to some extent. And yet there is a way to get at an objective measure of whether someone is a fop. And I would say that how you arrive at that determination involves looking at more than just the way that they dress. It involves looking at the rest of their manner of living. If as long as they look in the mirror on their way out the door, they are pleased with what they see. Uh, they, you know, carry on, but then they treat people in a rude, disdainful, obnoxious way. They neglect their responsibilities to provide and protect for the members of their uh, extended family, their relatives, especially the members of their own household. 
well, then we would say that person is a fop. You know, if you give me 500 bucks and my family needs groceries, also, I need to put some gas in the truck. Also, too, I've got, uh, you know, maybe a water bill to pay. And also, I could use a, a new pair of jeans and, uh, you know, a, a, a nice new shirt and maybe some shoes and some socks. Uh, you know, if, if I take that $500 and I put all 500 into buying the most expensive set of clothes that I can get my hands on, and there's nothing left over for groceries, for fuel, for that water bill, then I'm a fop. Now, if I happen to have uh, $5,000 and I put 500 into a really nice suit, uh, I, I put all the money that I need to into buying groceries, paying the water bill, gassing up, well, then maybe not, right? Maybe not. Maybe I'm not a fop. But excessive here is, uh, that's, that's a word that we should consider as being relative, not just what everybody else in the world thinks. It's not a matter of counting noses, but relative our circumstances and what our responsibilities are given our circumstances. If I am a husband and father, for instance, if I am a son and a brother and a neighbor, for instance, if I'm a churchman, for instance, et cetera, et cetera. But moving on, speaking of uh, relatively speaking, I'm going to play a short two-minute clip here from WTHR Channel 13 on YouTube. And this is a few years old. This is uh, a, a local news station out of Indianapolis, Indiana, talking about safe haven baby boxes and how do they work. And this was sent to me by my cousin, Micah Hirschberger. He wanted to get my thoughts on it. And... Uh, I do have some thoughts, which I've shared some of with him. And briefly, we will, I guess, uh, also consider those thoughts on this podcast in relation to some of the other items that uh, I want to talk about and I want us to think about in this episode. So here is WTHR Indianapolis talking about safe haven baby boxes. Take a listen. You know, someone abandoned that infant less than a mile from a safe haven baby box, less than a mile from a place where newborns are kept safe and also protects the mothers from prosecution. So we wanted to make sure that everyone knows how this program works. Jenny Runovich is here with how Safe Haven aims to really make a difference. Well, these boxes in the Safe Haven hotline have helped Hoosier moms in need surrender dozens of newborns since this program started three years ago. Now, these are boxes under the Safe Haven law that allow a mother in crisis to anonymously surrender her unharmed, unwanted newborn. They're usually at fire stations or hospitals. The baby must be 30 days old or younger. The boxes are like incubators with heating and cooling features. And an alarm notifies 911 as soon as a baby is placed inside so that first responders can take the child to the hospital. Now this program has been very successful. In fact, just this year in Indiana, it's been able to help safely surrender seven babies. Every single infant tracked through the system since 2016 has been adopted. And until Tuesday in Seymour, Indiana had not had an abandonment in almost four years. There are 14 baby boxes statewide right now, 18 all across the country. 
The Safe Haven Hotline has had nearly 5,000 calls to date. It is staffed 24 hours, and it lets women talk to a trained professional as they consider surrendering their baby. Now, here's that hotline for you. You see it right here on the screen. We also have this posted for you on WTHR.com. John? Indiana's latest baby box was installed just this afternoon in East Chicago. Another will go in in Fortville on Monday. Now, of course, this is a story Eyewitness News will continue to follow very closely as police continue to search for the infant's mother. You can follow us online and using the WTHR News app for any breaks in this case. All right, so what do we make of this? Is it a good thing? Uh, before you answer too quick, consider unintended consequences. Does this perhaps uh, get contrasted with a mother keeping the child and taking care of the child and getting through a hard patch, coming up with other ideas? Does this get contrasted and disincentivize the mother keeping her baby, taking care of it, raising that child uh, to have these baby boxes and to alert the public? Hey, listen. If your baby is 30 days old or younger and you are in crisis and you need to drop your baby off here, you're surrendering your parental rights from here on out, but we will take the child, we will care for it or make sure that that child is provided for or finds a home, etc. If the answer is yes, then maybe we consider, we ponder, uh, is this wise and we have to make some adjustments if there's a better thing. Uh, if, as I reason, most of us say yes, even after we've thought about it a while, yes, this is a good thing to have these baby drop boxes. This is a, uh, a, a more holistic way to prove that we are pro-life than just banning abortion, that we also are looking out for unwanted children who otherwise will be neglected or uh, exposed to to the elements, dropped off in the woods uh, in this very uh, tragic and frustrating case uh, that kind of prompted this uh, piece by the Indianapolis local TV station. Y you have a baby that was dropped off in a bag, just abandoned in a bag, a few short miles from uh, a baby drop box. And so they say, oh, well, maybe the public just doesn't quite know. You know, we're going to try and track down the mother. And here's a picture of uh, the guy we think who dropped off this baby in a bag and abandoned the baby. And, you know, if you have any information, please contact authorities. We'd like to track this guy down and, and uh, you know, hold him accountable. But, you know, if I'm looking at it and most of us are looking at this and saying, yes, this is a good thing. It's an honorable, worthwhile, noble pursuit to protect and save these babies from abandonment. Uh, I consider the or else being that the baby will be uh, uh, abandoned and die. So if it's an or else with the baby dying, then I say, yes, the baby drop boxes are a good thing. But something is something that comes to mind, you know, as, as I was being asked, uh, you know, are these good? And, here are some reasons that they might not be or might not be the best. And I was thinking of what I have heard and read about Christians in the ancient Roman Empire, early Christians, being known for taking uh, babies, taking infants that had been abandoned 
and raising them as their own, adopting unwanted children. And so I did a little bit of a search here, and uh, christianity.stackexchange.com has a question, uh, actually very, very similar, along very similar lines from uh, almost five and a half years ago. And I quote, uh, I've read in a Christian publication that one of the things that distinguished early Christian groups in the Roman Empire was that they would rescue babies that had been abandoned by their parents. In Rome, it was considered acceptable to abandon a newborn to the elements if the family, specifically the father, decided not to raise it. Here you get uh, the idea of pater familias, uh, that the oldest living male in a household could legally exercise autocratic authority over his extended family. If he said, no, we cannot support this child, I don't want this child, it would be abandoned. And that was uh, that was uh, just a norm, right? That was a cultural norm. Allegedly, Christians would collect these infants and raise them in their community. What are the sources of this claim, if any? The best answer, one answer given, cites the Encyclopedia of Ancient Christianity, which says in its entry for child, Christians took in these exposed children to save them, though often they could do nothing more than bury them as the tombs of many children and inscriptions in the catacombs attest. In some cases, consecrated virgins or benevolent wealthy families educated them. Uh, Also, too, here's a reference from that entry in the Encyclopedia of Ancient Christianity to E. Dale's Inscriptiones Latinae Christianae Veteres, a highly regarded collection of ancient Christian inscriptions in Latin, Uh, The second is to Augustine's epistle to Boniface, of which the relevant section reads, quote, again, sometimes foundlings, which heartless parents have exposed in order to their being cared for by any passerby are picked up by holy virgins and are presented for baptism by these persons who neither have nor desire to have children of their own. Nathaniel is protesting, continues, care for abandoned children by Christians continued into the Middle Ages. The encyclopedia continues, And I quote, after Constantine, laws began to protect these abandoned children, defending them as free persons. Later, it was largely monasteries that assumed the burden of educating these children, establishing conditions for their admission to a convent. Orphans were accepted unconditionally. At the beginning of the Middle Ages, the most common way of educating exposed or abandoned children was begun in 787. Datus, archpresbyter of Milan, donated a house near the church of St. Salvatore, to protect them. The first brephotrophium, or if you will, orphanage. And so what we have here is we've got the early church taking in these children. I don't know that you could say uh, what's being described is necessarily uh, a safe haven baby box, but in principle, there's a, a common theme. And insofar as this is a long-standing tradition of Christians to take care of orphans. We look to James one twenty-seven and see that this is religion that God the Father considers pure and undefiled, that we would attend to widows and orphans in their need. Now, that doesn't mean just any old way you would do it is wise, because the other part is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so somebody like an Abraham Piper might chime in and say, ah, yeah, but look at these scandalous 
ways that orphans have sometimes been treated or widows have sometimes been treated throughout church history. And I would say, yes, but that was not due to an excess of Christianity. That was due to an insufficient degree of obedience to Christ. And we're still judging, either way, we're judging, whether you want to admit it or not, against what God's word says is good and true and right and what our responsibilities are in the Christian ethic. And there's no getting around it. There's just no getting around it. It wasn't due to an excess of Christianity, an overabundance of Christianity. If anything, it was due to foppery where we want to make a appearance of virtue, but we don't actually possess that virtue. And we don't want to possess that virtue. It's like looking at yourself in the mirror with any one of a dozen different uh, sets of fancy high-end sunglasses before you take to Instagram to mock the Christian faith. But moving on, Gwyneth Paltrow has a podcast and she was uh, interviewing Katy Perry about family and about career and about life. And Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, podcast, it's called Goop, which is a weird name for a podcast, in my opinion. I'm sure there's a backstory, but I don't know what it is, nor am I going to derail what are more important (laughs) matters to discuss here, more interesting matters uh, to go find out. Gwyneth Paltrow was talking with Katy Perry about her two-year-old daughter with Orlando Bloom, uh, who she is engaged to be married to. So she's not married to Orlando Bloom, but Katy Perry and Orlando Bloom have a daughter named Daisy Dove Bloom. Now, in the interest of uh, consistency, if they're not married, then Daisy Dove Bloom really ought to be uh, I guess, you know, not necessarily Katy Perry, because Katy Perry is not her real name, but Catherine Elizabeth Hudson is her real name. You know, it, it, technically, because this daughter was born outside of wedlock, uh, the daughter really should have her mother's last name. But nevertheless, something that Gwyneth Paltrow told Katy Perry while they were discussing this uh, was as follows. It's hard on a relationship. Like I've looked back now on like the data set of parents with young kids and it just ruins the relationship. It's really hard. So, so in other words, you know, what do you do with that? Katy Perry, Katy Perry, by the way, also uh, the child of a pastor. She is a pastor's daughter, uh, specifically a, a Pentecostal pastor from Santa Barbara. Uh, Katy Perry pushed back and she admitted that the dynamics of a relationship, according to reporting by Katie Jerkovich over at the Daily Wire, the dynamics of a relationship do change when kids come into the picture. And yet she continued, I think if both people in the relationship are willing to do the work, then it's going to be so much easier. But if one person thinks they don't have any work to do, then it's going to be really challenging. Yes, that's accurate. That That's fair. Uh, more on that as we go along, but let me just point out, this is sad. I want to take a moment to just say that much, that this is sad. And I I don't say it's sad like, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to scold Katy Perry and Gwyneth Paltrow or Katy Perry's 
father who's a Pentecostal pastor in Santa Barbara. I'm not trying to scold Orlando Bloom. Uh, you know, I, I, what, I, what, I, what I just want to say is this is sad. It's sad. Can we just agree that this is sad? As in, it's appropriate to mourn and to be filled with regret. Uh, can I also point out that this is a very practical, pragmatic argument for getting married and then having children? Because if marriage is rightly understood, it is an oath. It is a sacred vow. It is a pledge. It's a contract that you will love, cherish, submit to, in the case of the wife to her husband, or protect, provide for, in the case of the husband, one another. And then by extension, any children who are born to you and your spouse, husband and wife, will also be raised up in the context of the wife submitting to the husband, the husband providing for and protecting the wife. This is the reason, practically speaking, for marriage. Now, from a spiritual standpoint, are there additional points we can bring in? Sure. But in the interest of simplicity, the order of operations from a pragmatic standpoint is reasonable and it has a good outcome. We know this by the statistics. If you're getting married, you're pledging before your family and your friends. You're making a sacred vow, a sacred oath to one another. You are establishing a covenant. You are establishing a contract. And if you pay attention to the vows that you exchange, you are enlisting all of your family and friends to help you to abide by that sacred oath, that vow, that contract, that covenant. As in, they will help you to learn how to do it if you don't know how to do it in a practical sense or when the details arise, when it gets difficult. Also, too, they will provide encouragement when you're feeling tired, discouraged, distracted, overwhelmed, out of your depth. Also, too, they will correct you if you start to go awry. They won't undermine your marriage. They will also partner with you in protecting, cherishing, and building up your marriage and any subsequent family that comes out of that marriage. That's the Christian position holistically on how to protect babies from being abandoned to the elements or to keep young women from being uh, functionally widows. Now, if a man just abandons her, he just leaves, he just hightails it, skips town. She might not be a widow technically, but for all the same reasons that you would attend to widows who are made widows after the fact, it would be better to go upstream. You know, let's say a young man, young woman, they get married, they have children, and he has a terrible accident. If you're in a position to protect him from having a terrible accident so that she's not ever made a widow, do so. That would be better than a reactive once she is a widow. And if they're not married and they start to fool around and then they get pregnant and she doesn't get an abortion, but she has the baby, but then 
She doesn't want to or doesn't think she can take care of that child. It might be good as a stopgap measure, as a short term, for the sake of the child to take that child in. What would be better is going upstream of all the above to get at the dynamics that make her think or make her actually correct even that she can't take care of this child. She can't raise this child. She can't provide for it. She can't feed it. She can't house it. She can't clothe it. She can't teach it. She can't take care of it. She can't take care of the little baby boy, the little baby girl just born to her. I would contend that the reason why having children is so disruptive to so many relationships statistically is because we are not going into the relationship with a view to the point. And then it catches us off guard and we're totally unprepared (laughs) because we've got too many young men who are dandies, who are foppish, who are frivolous, who are perpetually adolescent. And we have too, too many young women who are told that they don't need no man. They need to be a strong, independent, loud, boisterous, independent woman. And if they're not, well, then they've wasted their potential upstream of the trouble with broken marriages or marriages that don't start in the first place, abandoned children, abortions, is the disconnect between us and where do we come from? Who is God? Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? What is life about? Deal with the upstream. Sometimes you can't because it's already happened and it was not possible for you to get to this situation before the thing happened. And now you have to deal with the results and the consequences. But the better thing is to get to the root. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So he created them, male and female. And he blessed the man and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Start to put those pieces into place and you will not see children as a distraction or an impediment. You will see children as a fulfillment of relationship and not just in the abstract because we're trying to avoid too much assigning sacredness to marriage but you will see the fulfillment of marriage. Ephesians 5, for your consideration, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Interesting, the word own, your own husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But this is to say, too, if we do not understand how the church submits to Christ, then we also won't understand how the wife is supposed to submit to her husband. The two go hand in hand. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, let's pause there and we'll say the exact same thing we have to say about wives submitting to their husbands. If we don't understand how the church submits to Christ, then we won't understand how the wife is supposed to submit to her husband. If we don't understand how Christ loved the church, then we won't understand how husbands are supposed to love their wives. And all of these things go together. And you can't just have the benefits and pick and choose, but reject Christ, reject authority, reject responsibility, and then be surprised when it comes to a bad end. You can't. You just can't. So one of the analogies that my cousin Micah brought to my attention as he asked what I think of the safe haven baby boxes in Indiana was cases where in some cities, liberal, progressive, leftist-run, Democrat-run cities in the U.S., they have places that are set up for people who are drug addicts to come and do their drugs under supervision. And the reasoning is if they come here and overdose, we can recognize a medical emergency and intervene. We can give medical treatment to protect them from dying due to a drug overdose. And the question is, does that enable drug addiction? Does that normalize drug addiction? Does that actually contribute to more drug addiction? Is that help really helpful? That's an important question, and we should not answer it too quickly because the answer might be that that help is not helpful. That help is actually enabling self-destructive behavior. Another analogy, another comparison he gave was sex education programs that go into public high schools in particular and hand out condoms to all of the boys and the girls and say, you need to learn how to use a condom so that you can prevent unwanted teen pregnancies and, to some extent, prevent sexually transmitted diseases. And the reasoning is, these kids are going to have sex anyways. We might as well just set them up to be protected from the consequences of having sex in high school. We might as well just do our best to mitigate the consequences. And I don't think that that's a one-to-one with the baby drop boxes, in part because the baby drop boxes are there presumably first and foremost for the baby, not for the mother who's in crisis, not for the father who is playing the paterfamilia and saying, no, we're not keeping this child. It's interfering with our relationship. If the baby drop boxes are to protect that child, then I say that's different than handing out condoms in the school. And you might say, well, yeah, but I'm trying to protect that child. And I'm going to say, no, you're preventing that child from even being born in the first place. And this is exactly the same kind of argument that's made 
to insist that abortion needs to be safe, legal, and rare, even though it's not safe for the infant. Legality is a moot point because it's immoral. It's murder, objectively, and it's not rare. Abortion is the leading cause of death other than old age, which is wild. It's, it's not rare. And life of the mother is just taken to mean if the baby gets in the way of the kind of life she wants to have, not that she will die literally, as in this is a medical emergency. No, no. Life of the mother means whatever you want it to mean. It means she wants her life to involve going to college next, not raising this child. She wants her life to continue on involving going to the club and drinking with her friends and doing drugs. And this child will be in the way of that. So I reject the argument that these kids are going to have sex anyways, and so let's give them condoms or let's give them access to abortion. I reject that. That kind of argument is godless. It is normalizing the problem at its root, which is that these young people are having sex with no intention of committing to one another in marriage, and they don't understand the point. They don't understand the reason. They, they don't understand the purpose. Moving on, let's talk briefly about what the Bible says concerning fornication. Now, this is going to be more interesting than you might suppose on the front end, because I am going to say some perhaps controversial things concerning fornication, adultery, polygamy, and child marriage. So stay tuned if you don't want to miss that and you don't. Gotquestions.org answers the question, what does the Bible say about fornication? Fornication, they say, is a term used in the Bible for any sexual misconduct or impure sexual activity that occurs outside of the bounds of a marriage covenant. Fornication is also applied symbolically in the Bible to the sins of idolatry and apostasy or the abandoning of God. See also Abraham Piper. Although we should pray for him. This is where he's at. The word fornication comes from the Greek term porneia, from which we get our English word pornography and is often linked with adultery in the Bible. It is a general term for sexual immorality. Fornication includes adultery, which is the act of a married person engaging in sexual intercourse with someone other than his or her spouse. But fornication also involves engaging in any kind of sexual relations before marriage or between two people who are not married. For instance, in the King James Version of 1 Corinthians 5.1, fornication is used twice to describe a sexual sin that was being tolerated by the church. A man was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, let's pause. All right. I'm going to disagree with what might seem like some minor points here, but I, I think they are more significant than we appreciate on the front end. And you'll see why in a minute. Even if you disagree, you'll see why. And I'll tell you this, before I say the perhaps controversial thing, the scandalous thing, my reasons are as much as anything else for what I'm about to say <laughs> Because one, I don't want to be foppish concerning my handling of God's word, my treatment of the truth, my thinking about these things. I don't want to be foppish where I am 
excessively concerned about my appearance in relation to my responsibility. Now that said, what's my responsibility here? What's our responsibility here? 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's my responsibility here. And gotquestions.org, respectfully, they're close, but they're not quite, not quite there, I don't believe. They say fornication includes adultery, which is the act of a married person engaging in sexual intercourse with someone other than his or her spouse. That's too egalitarian, and it's not accurate. Adultery is the taking of someone else's wife. Not that the man or the woman, so long as they're married, irrespective of whether the person that they're going off with is also married, is an adulterer. An adulterer is a man who takes another man's wife or a woman who is someone's wife and she goes off with another man who's not her husband. That's what adultery is. Now let's take a look at Leviticus 20, 1 through 27. Yes, this is the law of Moses. Yes, you might not want to talk about the law because the law is convicting But insofar as we are still talking right and wrong, we have to look to God, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of Yahweh. On it, he meditates day and night. We have to actually read it (laughs) to meditate on it. (laughs) Here we see side by side passages that pertain to abortion and sexual immorality, starting in verse 1. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man, when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is a depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire. 
that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Yahweh your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Full stop. I could continue on, but let's just pause for a moment and understand that the reasons given have to do with the picture that is being painted if you will, going back to art analogies, or the way in which we are either reflecting the character of God well or perverting, making a mockery of, scoffing at the image of God in ourselves and in one another. It's interesting to note that again and again, when Israel goes after the gods, worshiping the gods of the nations around Israel, or the nations that God drove out of Canaan to give Canaan as the promised land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting to note that the way that that is described, what it's called is again and again, whoring. That is to say, this is about a covenant and the breaking of a covenant, because you think you can get a benefit, a better benefit, if you are breaking the covenant than if you are adhering to it. There are consequences for not respecting the covenant, the contract, the agreement, the pledge, the oath, the vow. There are sacred duties that come with making an, out, ma making an oath, making a vow, making a promise, making a pledge, establishing a covenant. There are sacred duties. There are not just terms, there are also enforcements and penalties for breaking the contract. And that's how we should understand rightly all of what is described here in Leviticus 20. 
concerning sexual immorality, sexual morality. There's language of clean and unclean that has to do with holiness and unholiness, righteousness and iniquity. That comes up again and again. But so much of what I think we are confusing in failing to distinguish between sexual immorality in a general sense, fornication, and adultery specifically, is the importance and value of the covenant. That is, not all sexual immorality carries the death penalty in the law of Moses. Now, in the New Testament, once we get to the New Testament, and you read 1 Corinthians 6, 9, for instance, Paul writes, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, so there's a general sense, nor idolaters, so there's the spiritual equivalent of sexual immorality or adultery, more to the point, when you worship other gods besides Yahweh God, uh, nor adulterers, as if to drive home the point that this is about breaking of covenant relationship, covenant faithfulness, either with God or with your wife, which is interesting because there's a difference between an adulterer, actually, if we want to get even more precise here, an adulterer and an adulteress. An adulterer is the man who takes another man's wife. An adulteress is a woman who is someone's wife, and yet she goes off with some man who's not her husband. This is not necessarily a comprehensive list of every kind of immorality, except in the sense that it says neither the sexually immoral. But then it gets specific on some points, because not all sexual immorality is adultery. And he continues as well, nor men who practice homosexuality. That actually uh, gets more specific in some translations and in the original Greek, where it breaks it down, for instance, in the KJV, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. So this would be to say the effeminate are they're being like women and the abusers of themselves with mankind are the other side of that. Neither, neither will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't you know that? Paul writes, do you not know? Did you not know that? They seem to have forgotten. That's the point. But this is, this is important to distinguish and I'll make clear my reasons here in just a moment. Christianity.com has an article, What is Adultery? The Biblical Definition and Consequences. And this is from 2020, Christianity.com editorial staff. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Proverbs 6.32. Again, adultery is a specific kind of sexual immorality. All adultery is sexual immorality. Not all sexual immorality is adultery. But Proverbs 6.32, you destroy yourself to commit adultery. They provide the definition of adultery as follows, quote, voluntary sexual relations between a married person and someone other than that person's current spouse. But, and this is important, according to Easton's Bible Dictionary, the simple meaning of adultery is marital infidelity. An adulterer was a man who had illicit intercourse with a married or a betrothed woman, and such a woman was an adulteress. Intercourse between a married man and an unmarried woman was fornication. Adultery was regarded as a great social wrong as well as a great sin. Why is that? Because it's not just sexual immorality. It is also 
oath-breaking. It is also the breaking of a covenant vow. Whether you are the one who is breaking your own vow that you made, or you are soliciting someone else to break their vow, to break their oath. And and why this is important, right? Why Why this is important. It is not at all to downplay the seriousness of adultery or sexual immorality generally. It is to place the emphasis, when adultery is such a serious sin, to place the stress more heavily on the breaking of covenant than we currently do, than we think to. If we think that adultery is primarily, first and foremost, bad because it's sexual immorality, we ought to consider that maybe we have undervalued how sacred a covenant vow is. And maybe this is an obscure point to make, but I want to underline that there's a difference. And this is also important. This is where the egalitarian assault on distinctions between man and woman, between male and female, set us up to misunderstand. Because intercourse between a married man and an unmarried woman, which is to say she is not his wife, is not adultery. We say person in an androgenizing way that abolishes the distinction between man and woman, male and female. And insofar as we do that, I think we have introduced a de facto rejection of what God's word says about male and female, husband and wife, Old Testament and new. Can it be sexual sin, sexual immorality for a married man to have sex with an unmarried woman? Yes, indeed. But in the Old Testament law, and and this is both what is described and also what is commanded, so the law and also the history that is presented, these are not treated the same. And if we are close, careful students of the word, we'll recognize that. The early church fathers, I think some of them, badly misunderstood the problem with sexual immorality. They got so carried away, and I was reading some of this here recently, so I was having a discussion with some friends about uh, polygamy. But some of the early church fathers, like Origen, for instance, had such a view of sex, such a low view of sex, not because they were close students of the word, but because they were bringing in Greek philosophy. They had been taken captive by Greek philosophy, and it's regarding as good what is spiritual and as inherently corrupt what is physical. And this is part of why heresies cropped up in the early church, rejecting the full humanity of Christ or saying he couldn't have been fully God and fully man, so he was a created being, like Arius contended. Arius and Pelagius and Marius, Arius and Marius, they were taken captive by Greek philosophy to the point that not recognizing the distinction between being lured and enticed by sexual immorality and the goodness of sex itself, Origen castrated himself or is purported to have. It's a legend about him that he castrated himself. Augustine, when he writes about the effects of sin and the fall on even a married man and wife, 
rejects the idea that they should have relations because they enjoy one another, insisting, and this is part of where the Roman Catholic Church takes its cue when it comes to its view on contraceptives, abortion, taking the view that the sole purpose of sex is reproduction. Now, is there evidence biblically that the primary purpose, the first chief goal of relations between a husband and wife, between marriage at all, is offspring, to produce godly offspring, as Malachi says, therefore let none of you be faithless to the wife of his youth? Yes, but if we misunderstand what lust is, then we will encourage young married men and women to feel guilty and ashamed and like they are sinning to enjoy one another. And that's not correct. You cannot read Song of Songs and come away with that view unless you do another erroneous thing, another very mistaken thing, and you read Song of Songs as purely allegorical. Oh, it couldn't possibly mean what it at face value obviously means. What's being described? Oh, it couldn't be that. This must be an allegory only for God and his people. Well, if it's going to be an allegory for God and his people, then it has to actually match on both ends of the metaphor. If it has, if it's going to be a good thing that God would talk this way to Israel, his people, his nation, his wife, then it has to be a good thing that a husband, an individual husband, would interact this way with his literal wife. If this is going to be a picture of Christ and the church, well, then it has to be the case that this can be a good and appropriate and God-honoring way for a individual husband to relate to his individual wife, like Ephesians 5 talks about. And if we don't understand how Christ loves the church, and we don't understand how the church submits in everything to Christ, then we actually don't derive much benefit from over-spiritualizing this. But it's important that we understand that the relationship God has with Israel or the relationship Christ has with the church is covenantal. And that's why it's not just unclean. It's not just, oh, you shouldn't do that. It's, oh no, you have broken a sacred oath, a sacred vow. This is a contract and there are terms and conditions to the contract till death do you part? A death has just occurred in a spiritual sense in the breaking of this covenant. Now you could say, oh, but Garrett, it has to be both, right? It has to be both. And if a woman who is married or betrothed to be married has relations with a man who is not her betrothed or her husband. And on the other hand, if it's the man who is married or betrothed and he has relations with some other woman who is not his betrothed or his bride. And how we know that is not the case is that we see examples of men having multiple wives in the Old Testament and not being put to death. Also too, again, technically speaking, it's not sexual immorality in the sense of sex outside of marriage, fornication. And for one, it's not adultery because Jacob is married to Rachel and Leah at the same time. It's not adultery because he's married to both of them simultaneously, but it's also not fornication because it's not outside of marriage. 
And the egalitarian sensibility and assumption will say, but that's not fair. It should be uniform. And to that, I would ask, where is that written? Now, someone will say, but Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus, qualifications for overseers and deacons must be the husband of one wife, able to manage his own household well. A man had to only have one wife. And that could mean several things. That could mean, one, he's not a womanizer running around, flandering. Two, he's not divorced and remarried, divorced and remarried. Three, and this is the interpretation I favor, he's not a polygamist. But by by virtue of it being specifically addressed to qualifications for overseers and to deacons in the church, it is implied that this is not a qualification for being a Christian. Now, that's not the same thing as saying that we should encourage, incentivize, normalize men getting married to multiple women all at the same time. But why this matters, even if we don't have polygamists in the church, is that the androgenizing assumption that there's no difference, no meaningful difference, except for our physical bodies between men and women, is part of how we've gotten to the moment where we're at right now that men can say, I'm a woman, and if they go get the surgery and it looks from the outside like they've got the same body and they dress the same and they have the same mannerisms and they act the same, we have a hard time contradicting them unless there's more to it than that. There's a comprehensive difference that is not so deep that you know men are human fully and women are not fully human, but it's comprehensive and it's it's total enough that there actually is no difficulty whatsoever on this basis anyways, to say that Jacob was married to Rachel and Leah at the same time, simultaneously. Not on egalitarian grounds anyways, because the, the biblical teaching on men and women, and by that I don't mean everything that's purported to be biblical teaching, but what I mean is what the Bible actually teaches, what it actually says, cannot be called egalitarian. It just can't. Now, the disturbing thing, if this is true, if what I'm saying is correct, that all adultery is sexual immorality, but not all sexual immorality is adultery, or that we are misunderstanding these passages, if this pertains to the expectations that are put on men and women, then actually the MGTOW, men going their own way, uh, men's rights movement, feminists, they're all wrong because what they're objecting to is that we treat men a certain way, we treat women a different way. They're on both ends. They're two sides of the same coin in being wrong. Now, there are some ways in which men and women should be treated just the same, and that is thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Both alike are sinners that need a savior, that need to confess and repent. But from there, what responsibilities do they have? Ephesians 5 does not give gender-neutral admonitions about husbands and wives and say, spouses, you know, how weird would it read if we read Ephesians 5 as spouses, submit to your own spouses, as to the Lord, for the spouse is the head of the spouse, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also spouses should submit in everything to their spouses. 
spouses, love your spouses as Christ loved them. No, that's, that's not what it reads. That's not what it says. And actually, the paragraph about husbands loving your wives is longer, more detailed than the paragraph about wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So we can say that marriage is sacred. Marriage has a purpose. Marriage is instituted by God. God has a purpose for marriage. The marriage vow is sacred. That This is a covenantal relationship. That the terms of the covenant are faithfulness, but that the terms of the faithfulness are not uniform in their details because husbands have a different set of responsibilities, a distinct set of responsibilities in some very important ways from what responsibilities their wives have. And so actually, even when we come to, say, for instance, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about, you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. We read that passage differently. We have to read that passage differently if adultery is more narrowly defined, a man taking someone else's wife. And when that is the context of you have heard that it was said, then the word lust actually and you can look this up. The, the word that is translated into English so often as lust is better translated covets or coveting. And the word that is translated woman in a gen, generic general sense is more rightly translated wife. You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that a man who looks at a, another man's wife in order to covet her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ooh, what does that do for our understanding of these things? What does that do for the way that we now are reminded of the importance of covenant faithfulness? And specifically, if the man there is supposed to be loving his own wife, as Christ loved the church and doesn't have one, he should go get a wife for himself, it is better to marry than it is to burn with passion, as Paul writes. Also, he needs to regard it as sacred that that is someone else's wife. Not just that that's another woman, that that's someone else's wife is critically important. You're not just sinning against that woman or against God or against your own body. No, you are sinning against the husband of that woman. And this reframes the way that we perceive Every instance of unfaithfulness to God from Old Testament, from Genesis, all the way to Revelation, this puts it in a totally different light. When Satan goes to Eve and says, hath God said, the point of attack is not just that there's this fruit we're not supposed to eat and let's eat it and who cares, right? Why, why is it such a big deal? No, it's a big deal because the serpent is supposed to be under the authority of of man who's been given the charge to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, exercise dominion, rule. The woman is supposed to be under the authority of her husband. The husband is supposed to be under the authority of God who made them. For the woman to listen to the serpent, for the husband to listen to his wife, it's a reversal. It's a mirror image of the order that God had put these creatures into. 
And so first and foremost, this is a sin against God, and it's a sin against the authority that he places in the husband, the authority the husband is supposed to respect in God, the authority that the animal or creature is supposed to respect in man. But then we come to these passages in the New Testament, and we see this. There are teachers who choose, who prefer to androgenize this passage in Ephesians 5. Wives submit to your own husbands. So then when feminists turn this into, well, but you know, what's really the difference between men and women? They're both alike. No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. You are making this about all men and all women. And this passage explicitly, detailedly says, wives submit to your own husbands. So the wife is not to submit to all men everywhere. She's submitting to her own husband because she submits to God. Husbands love your wives, not husbands love all wives, not love all women in the same way. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, interestingly enough, not as a argument for polygamy or polygamy being wise or good or advisable, but Augustine actually writes that polygamy is permitted by God in the Old Testament because it advances the dominion mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I kid you not. Augustine writes that. Now, Augustine and Tertullian, as I understand it, as I have read secondhand, I haven't read them directly saying this, or I don't remember if I did pass over it. They admit that in their day, the church decided that polygamy was a sin. And it had not been to that point. There were Christians in the early church who were polygamists. And then moving forward, they said, that is not blessed. The church will not affirm that, condone that, permit that. But actually, if I look at a map of the world from Wikipedia, polygamy is illegal and criminalized in North America and South America and Europe. In Russia, it is illegal, but it's not criminalized, which is curious. In India, it is only legal for Muslims, which is even more curious. <laughs> uh, why legal for Muslims? Well, because they'll get very unpleasant if you tell them they can't, and they already have been. So that's a peacekeeping measure there, I would say. Most of Africa, it is legal. In what's left, except for, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven countries, eight countries, a few islands, uh, with the exception of seven or eight African countries, it is either legal or if it's illegal, it's not criminalized. All over the Middle East, with the exception of Israel, it is legal. And I think this is something that Christian missions and Christian outreach organizations that operate in these countries or that operate in connection to immigrants, refugees uh, from these countries have to grapple with, and the church then increasingly, especially as the birth rate in Europe and 
in the U.S. goes down and down, the Western church will have to grapple with this increasingly as there are fewer and fewer people in society having children except if they are not from around here. And the folks who are not from around here in Europe's case very often are coming from the Muslim world where it is legal. This is probably just a matter of time before it becomes decriminalized and then legalized and then normalized. Not for the same reasons as all of the other LGBTQ plus redefinitions of marriage, upending of ideas of family, but nevertheless. Also, interestingly, I found on a related note, something at publications.aap.org under their pediatrics section, an article from September 1st, 2011, titled Child Marriage in the United States and its Association with Mental Health in Women. Very briefly, did you know that 9% of marriages, 8.9%, but I'm rounding up to 9%, 9% of marriages in the U.S. were so-called child marriages, that is, under 18. So they might be 17, very close, and they're counted in the child marriage statistics. I think that's misleading. I think that could use some retooling. We're not necessarily talking children at 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. We're talking somebody younger than what is legally recognized to be an adult. But according to this study, very often when they look at the prevalence of mental health issues or generalized health issues, there's a much higher incidence of mental health and general health problems for child marriage, uh, for, for young women who are married under 18. And I would guess that this is not necessarily because they were married so young, but for the same reasons that they married so young, that they are also having mental health and general health issues and seeking treatment. There was a lack of self-control and discipline and orderliness that contributed to both their mental health problems and also probably having something like a shotgun wedding, probably teenagers who were messing around and got pregnant. And now their parents on both sides are saying, okay, you guys are going to get married. As with everything else we've been discussing, what would be better? The better thing would be to go upstream and to talk about who are we? Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What should we be about? You only answer those questions by answering the question of who is God? Why did he make us? What does he call us to? What has he provided us with? And why did he provide us with that thing? And what should we do with it? Now, interestingly, on the opposite side of the world, from 2015, a study of polygamy in Tanzania finds that the practice of sharing a husband may, in some circumstances, lead to greater health and wealth for women and their children. This, an article in Jewish Business News, published October 29th, 2015, titled, Often Decried, Polygony May Sometimes Have Advantages. What I'm not saying is we want to encourage young people at 16, 17, 18 years old to all get married. And I'm not saying that we want to normalize polygony. But what I would absolutely say is, 
if we go back to what God's word says about the purpose of marriage, the point of marriage, if we go back to before that, why God made man in his image, what God said, what he has instituted as far as male and female, the purpose of marriage, how we should think about covenant and family. If we go back to that and we stick closely to that, then we will have a lower incidence of relationships that break up. And we call them relationships because we're not calling them marriages because they're not married, like Katy Perry and Orlando Bloom. We will have a lower incidence of marriages coming to an end over having children and not having planned ahead of time and oriented the union to be ready for that. We will have lower incidences of even needing safe haven baby drop boxes. I think our orphanages will be empty because our homes will be full. Our hearts will be full. Lastly, how all of this relates and not in an abstract way, not in a tangential way. Let's ask the question, what is a theodicy? Not to be confused with Homer's The Odyssey, but Theodicy, one word, it's a noun, Oxford Languages defines it as follows, the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. Now, there are three theodicies, or a theodicy can take three forms. One is logical deductive, the second is evidential inductive, the third is existential. Might I propose we approach marriage and family and both having and rearing children as a theodicy to illustrate what happens when we don't do this consider the case of abraham piper not that john piper his father is guilty if abraham piper is the prodigal son a scoffer a mocker Francis Schaeffer, also his son, Frankie, very similarly, has repudiated the faith of his father as publicly, as loudly as he possibly can, claiming to be a Christian atheist. Ironically, still employing a very evangelical approach to spreading his ideas, communicating. Funny how that works. But the theodicy is inverted after a fashion. When the children born to men of God are themselves mocking the whole idea of following Christ, the Christian faith, the Bible being true, they are denying the divine goodness and God's providence. And what they will point to is the existence of evil. And they will even provide some representative samples themselves in a logical way or an attempt at being logical in an evidential way. So they'll point to certain anecdotes in the world, in life, and they'll say, ah, see, this exists. This happened. Therefore, I deny the existence of God or the goodness of God or the providence of God. By contrast, if we are told to love our wives, men, as Christ loved the church, then I deduce our marriages are supposed to be a theodicy as a picture of God's goodness towards us. 
like Christ loved the church, is another way of saying we should be able to get an idea of what it looked like for Christ to go to the cross to redeem his bride by looking at a Christian marriage the way a Christian husband loves his wife. Also, we can have an apologetic to the church and in the church and for the church, helping it to make sense for those on the outside and the inside, how the church is supposed to submit to Christ if wives submit to their own husbands in everything as unto the Lord and illustrate that. Within all of the above, we have to understand that Christ is not equal to the church in terms of authority. That's inherent. And in just that way, in just that respect, for one, you have a safeguard against men being tyrannical. If, as part of the church, they recognize that their authority is not equal to Christ's, they must submit to Christ in everything. If they really, truly recognize that, and they're not just pretending, they're not just play-acting, they're not hypocrites, there's a safeguard to the kind of wielding of authority they will pursue, argue for, insist on. At the same time, apart from recognizing that Christ's authority is greater than that of the church, we recognize and affirm that the authority of the husband is greater than that of the wife, and the wife submits to the husband in everything, even as the husband loves his wife and lays his life down for her in imitation of Christ as a theodicy representing the divine goodness and the providence of God. Otherwise, what do we communicate? We communicate that we find fault with God's original plan and purpose for man, male and female, marriage, husband and wife, family, father, mother, children, children obey your parents, respect your parents, honor your father and mother. And mark my words, if we have an appropriate distinction between creature and creator, between man and woman, between parents and children, and we understand all of the above and how they ought to relate to one another by design, then we will have religion that God the Father regards as pure and undefiled. And even if somebody does mock that, marginalize that, if they say it's as trivial as putting together puzzles, or ultimately doesn't matter, who cares, but having a broad array, a large collection of fashionable sunglasses, that matters, apparently. Well then, it will affect them, but we will have a blessing. Like the man in Psalm 1, we will be prospering in everything that we do, and we will testify thereby and accordingly. That's the only way to really get at the root of the problem of broken relationships, broken marriages, abandoned children, to understand that appearances matter, yes, but not only appearance matters. Study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. For one, that's a good thing to do because God said so. For two, from a self-preservation standpoint, Psalm 1 says, 
you'll prosper in everything that you do. You'll be blessed. You'll be like a tree planted beside streams of water, bearing fruit in your season. But also, you will be able to withstand, firm in your faith, trials, temptations. For another, you will be equipped for every good work, complete, lacking nothing. And I know, I know, you know, I I tie these things together and you might be thinking, whew, man, I don't know if it's worth it to bring it all together the way that you're bringing it together. It's a lot of risk. It's pretty risky stuff. But I would say it's more risky to misunderstand why marriage matters, why having children matters, why keeping your word matters. How we arrive at conclusions is sometimes more important than the conclusions themselves because we will arrive at the wrong conclusions on something else just as readily as we'll arrive at the wrong conclusions on this thing. Or if we accidentally arrive at the right conclusions for the wrong reasons, then we come to some other issue where actually the stakes are much higher and we're still using faulty methods, faulty reasoning. We arrive at the wrong conclusions but we shrug until we have a bad outcome because last time it was fine. Yeah, but last time it was wrong too, since the reasoning was wrong. You know, I bring up this whole polygamy thing in part because I was reading recently about the early church fathers. As I mentioned, Tertullian, Jerome, Augustine, Origen, and reading about some of the early heresies and the early church fathers writing against, arguing against those early heresies and sometimes getting tunnel vision because, for instance, in the case of Augustine, the Manichaeans were such a danger and he had been part of their cult before he became a Christian. And so it was close to home. He knew a thing or two about what they taught, what they believed, what they practiced, and how that is not what the Christian believes. In several key regards, they're at opposite purposes, cross purposes. And so he gets a little bit of tunnel vision with the Manichaeans. And think forward 1,500 years, if he was mistaken on a thing and we didn't catch it, And we just carry forward that error 1,500 years until someone says, "Mm, I think that's not quite correct, or that's not all we should say. So also with Origen, he looks at Jesus saying, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it into the fire. It would be better to enter into paradise, enter into heaven with one eye than to go to hell with both eyes. He takes that very literally and castrates himself because he has a faulty notion of sexual desire, sexual interest. He literally emasculates himself. And I'm reading, it's good to be a man. And I'm remembering having read Why Men Hate Going to Church. And Spurgeon comes up here recently about this halfway mark that I'm at and what Spurgeon had to say about foppish ministers, foppish churchmen, unmanly, most interested in gaining the approval of women in the church, and then 
when they become ministers, they empower loud, brash, foolish women in the church who want more than to obey God, to assert dominance, to assert themselves pridefully, disobediently. And the foppish men so badly want these women's approval that they will go after whoever the loud women are saying is a problem. And we see this. We see this in the church. And this is why men hate going to church was written, I'm convinced, because there's a union between the foppish men and loud women. And in a healthy church, in a church that is obeying Christ, submitting to Christ in everything, you don't have foppery elevated, celebrated, acclaimed. I worry a little bit about the it's good to be a man crowd a little bit because there might be a foppery to being (laughs) anti-foppery. I'll give you a minute to think about that, but there might be, right? Just like the seeker-friendly crowd that we had a lot of association with when we went to church in Hillsboro, Ohio, could make wearing blue jeans and plain white t-shirts to church just as much a uniform if they're not careful as the churches they grew up in, those people grew up in and were offended by, made suits and long dresses the uniform. And we missed the point that the inner heart, our minds submitting to Christ, is the prerequisite. And how you dress should reflect that, absolutely. But it's an order of operations. You will get a different answer if you do your calculations in a different order. There's a PEMDAS that's needed here in all of the above. Not just the appearance of the correct order of operations, but the correct order of operations so that you get the right answer consistently. When we're getting the wrong answer consistently, that speaks to us doing our calculations in the wrong order, and we are getting the wrong answer consistently. So when I finish reading It's Good to Be a Man, I will give you an update. I will have more to say. So far, they say a much needed thing, even just in the title. It's good to be a man. Paganism celebrates androgyny, historically, blurring the distinction in the most holy between male and female. Judaism, Christianity, Old Testament, New Testament, expressly clear that man and woman are different, and that's good. You can have a sinful expression of masculinity, a sinful expression of femininity. Masculinity is not sinful. Femininity is not sinful. How we know is God saw what he had created, and behold, it was very good after he made man, male and female. It was very good. But even there, you know, it, it, it's like the guys who go to the gym and they work out and they have these ginormous muscles. And the only place they ever apply those strengths of theirs that they're cultivating all week is at the gym. If you don't know what those muscles are good for, then what's the point? It's like women who pour all of their time and attention into being beautiful 
but they're single, they're childless, they have no intention of getting married and having kids. In fact, the height of achievement, as they see it, would be if the whole world just thought that they were the most beautiful woman in the world. Yeah, but for what? Do you even know why you want to be beautiful so much? Guys, do you even know why you want to be so strong? You're going to be depressed when you get to what you thought was your highest level of achievement. And it's empty and without purpose and a vanity of vanities of chasing after the wind. Unless you stop and take a look at who we are, why are we here, where did we come from, where are we going, what are we supposed to be about, who is God, who are we, how should we relate to God, how should we relate to one another. You do that and then we can have expressions of masculinity for men, expressions of femininity for women, which are good and true and beautiful and which testify to the goodness of God, which serve as a theodicy. That's what we should be about. That's what we should be pursuing. I bring up the other things, the anecdotal things, to underline the point that we can pursue the right things for the wrong reasons, in which case we will not get the right things. We will get a bait and switch. Covenant faithfulness is hugely important to God. Also, too, might I just point out, appreciating the goodness of God's design for marriage, sex, parenting, raising a family, being an honorable man, being a woman of good character. It actually is the secret to being self-controlled because then you know why and you actually will want, you'll be able by God's grace to want the good thing and to not want the bad thing. The bad thing is not that you would be a man, men. It's not that you would be a woman, women. It's not that when you get married, you would enjoy one another. It's not that the wife would submit to the husband. Oh, that's bad. There's too many, too many examples where that is abused. Any more than you would say it's a bad thing for children to obey their father and mother because some parents are abusive. And the line of reasoning we employ to go the direction that we go with it is hugely important. Do we believe that God is good? That he's always been good? He always will be good. That will come out. Our answer to that question will come out in how we orient ourselves on these things. You know, Consider when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, and this is the way that it's translated very often in the English, that a man who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does that say to young men who look at a young woman and think she's beautiful and I want her to be my wife? And she's not married and he's not married. She says, oh, but you just lusted after me. You just desired me. Wait a second. Lust here has to do with wanting what belongs to someone else. It's, I would say, I would argue more correctly translated covets. So if she's already somebody else's wife and you look at her and you think, man, I really would like her to be my wife, then we have a problem. If you see an unmarried woman and she's unattached and you're unattached and you say, I would really like her to be my wife. Paul says, it's better to marry than to burn with 
passion. Because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband, and they should render unto one another their conjugal duties and not deprive one another. So what we ought not to do is say to young men, if you are interested in a young woman who is unmarried and you are unmarried, that's sinful, that's carnal. Because this is also part of why men hate going to church, because we have told them in so many ways that there's no distinction. And there is, actually. There's a huge distinction. And this is part of why it's important to assign a proper reverence to the covenant that is entered into in marriage. Because then we say, this, this covenant is holy, set apart, sacred, lifelong, life-giving. And we honor it, not denigrating it. Not saying, oh, it's going to be hard and awful and probably not successful. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. That's not going to sell it. For those who are married, we want to orient the attitude, the mindset, not in such a way that the husband and the wife feel guilty, frustrated, thinking that they've missed out or that they are failing or they are being ungodly if they enjoy one another. But that's essentially, you know, the early church fathers speculated that if the patriarchs, if the kings enjoyed their wives, instead of just trying to begat children, just trying to obey the dominion mandate, then that was sinful. That's a result of the fall. That's lust. It's it's not possible for you to lust after your own wife, though, because lust has to do with coveting. Coveting has to do with wanting what belongs to another. Paul says expressly that the husband's body doesn't belong to the husband alone, but also to his wife. The wife's body does not belong to the wife alone, but also to her husband. It's not possible for them to covet what is already theirs. So now they just have to cherish, steward, love out of their reverence for God, their love for God, as an expression of the goodness of God. But more can be said, more will be said. I got to run. It's a Saturday, nearly noon, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.